This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Romans chapter 2, uh, we're continuing our series through the book of Romans uh, uh, this morning, and we find ourselves today, I've entitled today's message, The Gift of Conscience. A little bit of review from last week uh, to kick things off in the introduction, and then we'll uh, jump into um, uh, the bulk of today's message, which is talking about the role of the human conscience uh, in morality uh, and how we live our lives. Romans chapter 2, we're starting verse number 12 this morning. Verse number 12 says, for as, many, for as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Verse number 12 makes it really clear. The Jews got the Ten Commandments, God's law. Non-Jews never got God's law, but he holds everyone equally responsible, is what verse number 12 says. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are law unto themselves. Verse 14 is a little bit wordy. It basically says, hey, the Gentiles, non-Jews, they didn't have the law the way that the Jews did, but they still kept parts of the law. They they didn't kill, they didn't steal, uh, they didn't lie because they had kind of created their own version of the law. Verse number 15 says, which shows the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, then meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So what Paul says here is that no one had to tell non-Jews that it was wrong to kill. Everybody kind of already understands that. Uh, Nobody had to tell them that it was wrong to lie. They just kind of automatically understand that. Nobody had to tell them, hey, it's wrong to take something that doesn't belong to you and own it for yourself. That's stealing. Nobody had to tell them that. They already knew. And so uh, we asked the question last week again. This is the review portion of it. How do cultures spread across the globe throughout thousands of years of world civilization come to an agreed upon code of acceptable moral behavior? How does that happen? How do all these people, regardless of what part of the world you're from, regardless of the upbringing that you had, uh, there's certain things that everybody knows is wrong. Uh, Lying, stealing, killing, um, things like adultery. Everybody gets kind of that uh, concept already. How is it that we all come to this agreement together? Because again, verse number 14 and 15 tell us that God's written his law upon the heart of every man. Inside of us is some sort of moral compass of right versus wrong, good versus evil, righteousness versus sin. Again, if you, we talked about this last week, that if you have children, we don't have to teach them how to sin. They automatically know. Whenever they sin against God, they know that they've done wrong because they have a conscience. They have God's law written upon their hearts. And so when you don't have to tell uh, your child, hey, don't hit your sister. They already know that it's wrong to hit their sister. Uh, and if you say, did you hit your sister? They'll lie to cover up the wrong that they've done, right? No, I didn't hit my sister. Well, who did? I don't know. Did somebody come in from outside and hit your sister and leave? Yes. 
Are you sure? Yes, okay. We already understand morality at the core. I've done something wrong. I want to cover it up. I want to lie. I'm willing to double down, triple down to get out of the mess that I've made. Why? Because we have in our hearts some level of primitive, I guess if you will, uh, as opposed to refined determination of right versus wrong, good versus evil, because God's written his law upon our hearts. And so if God is written his law upon the heart of man, how can man disobey God's law? It's, it's there. Uh, we, we know that, that God has told us right from wrong, good from evil. Why is it that we can, you and I can just sin against God if God has written his law on our hearts? Again, to understand this, we would have to go back and review chapter number one, which we spent, uh, I don't know, probably 18 messages going through uh, chapter number one, verse by verse. But basically, the, the short version of it breaks down, down into really four parts. First of all, in verse number 21, man disregards God. I know that there is a God. I just don't want to follow him. I know what God expects of me. I don't want to do it. And man pushes God to the side and, and totally disregards God and his law. Verse number 21 also tells us that man's foolish heart becomes darkened. Again, I gave just my view, viewpoint on it, take it for what it's worth, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. John chapter 1 tells us that he lights every man that comes into the world. And so every man has some source of light, which is Jesus Christ, which is the very word of God, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1. And there comes a point where we push God to the side and we want to do our own thing, that that light that is in every man who comes into the world is put out. And man no longer desires to know God or know the light that comes from God's word. Whenever we shut off God and we no longer want to follow God, man must then create his own version of morality. We create our own rules as far as what's acceptable and unacceptable. We determine what is good and evil. And we find ourselves in this in our society today where we've kind of set up our own rules that are separate from the Bible because we know better than God. And again, when you go through Romans chapter 1, you see they considered themselves wise, more wise than God, and they became fools. And then finally, God says, hey, I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to argue with you. And verse 28 tells us God gives them up to their corrupt mind. Hey, you want to chase after sin? Go for it. Uh, you want to eat garbage for the rest of your life? Go for it. Uh, you want to live in filth the rest of your life? Go for it. And God gives them up to chase after what they want to. And now we create a system apart from God's law, a system apart from God's morality, and we basically create, here's where we find ourselves today as Americans, we create a godless society where it's not simply enough to just edge God out and pretend he's not there. Now we have a society that wants to be openly hostile towards the things of God. Uh, it's not enough like, hey, that's good for you. Now it's like, you're a fool for believing that. You're an idiot. How can anybody believe such an old book? You're one of those, I guess. And then we try to, they try to marginalize us even further, trying to put us in a, a particular corner or a particular label and, and labels based on things like political affiliation or who you vote for or uh, things along those lines, which uh, my belief system is more than a political category. My belief system is more than, than who I voted for in the last election or who I'm voting for in the upcoming election. Uh, I am a child of God. I'm a follower of God. I'm a believer in the Bible. I'm a disciple and committed follower of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. To try to add any other labels to that is simply to marginalize, fractionalize, and, and, and really reduce my belief structure down to a convenient category. But it's bigger than that. But this is what happens when we create our own morality structure apart from God. 
And so to determine what is acceptable in our culture today, you don't find it by looking to the Bible. You don't find out what's acceptable in our culture by determining, looking in some particular book or even seeing what rules are and guidelines are in the, the law, government law of the day. To determine what's acceptable today, we, we've gone to kind of a, um, a kind of almost like a, some type of system where we can't really discern that other than to see what's taking place around us. And so things like social media or the news and uh, things like that, television shows will inform for us what's appropriate these days. And then we jump on those social cues and that becomes our morality. God never intended it that way. God gave us his law, he gave us his word, and he expects us to live by it. And, and believe it or not, some people might say, well, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, according to the Bible, you will still be judged according to God's law. Again, and you might disagree that water is wet. doesn't change the fact that water is wet. You might say, I don't even believe in water. Okay, that doesn't mean that it no longer exists. It just means that you have chosen to be blind to the truth. So all man will be judged according to God's word. You can't get around that. And so then... We have to make sure that we follow God's rules then, so we need some way of guiding us through life to, to point us back towards God's rules. And we find today that God has given us a tool for that. He's given us a gift for that. It's the gift of our conscience. And so God's given mankind the gift of conscience to keep us attuned to the law that's written on our hearts. Again, a child, when he breaks something, uh, Broke the lamp. Man, my first response is to try to clean it up, hide it, make sure that, that make it look like it didn't happen. I remember my brother and I were one time playing uh, catch in the front yard of my, my grandmother's house, and we were pl- playing catch, and I'd thrown the ball, really wild ball, and it went and hit the neighbor's picture window. I mean, it, it was probably four feet by eight feet, sheet of glass, hit the window, the window cracks, and what happens? My brother runs inside and sits on the couch and turns on the TV like he's been there the whole time, right? It's just like, wow. And then the neighbor comes out, and I'm standing there with a glove, and she looks, and she sees a baseball, and she's just like, oh. And it's just like, and she's like, what happened? I was just like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. At that moment, I realized I had done something wrong. My, my grandmother's neighbor recognized that I had done something wrong, but that moment came where, again, we have to face right versus wrong and what we do with that. God's given us a conscience to do that. Dictionary definition term of a, the term conscience, an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. Self-awareness that judges whether or not one, an act one has carried out or plans to carry out is in harmony with one's moral standards. Now, we're going to pause here for just a second and say this. The conscience is not foolproof, and we'll see why in just a little bit, but that last phrase should, should make your ears perk up. In line with one's own moral standards. And so again, my moral standards might differ from the guy across the street's moral standards, which might differ from your neighbor's moral standards based on uh, where they grew up or what type of environment that they had or what their religious background is or what country they're from. All those things can change based on uh, different factors. And so we say that to say from the beginning that the conscience is a tool to point us to right versus wrong, but it is not foolproof, and we'll see why in just a moment. 
And so God's given us this gift, if you want to think of it like as a, as a compass that always points to true north, that's what our conscience does. But here's what happens over time if we're not careful and we just kind of go with the flow of society. Our conscience can become damaged. And now we're no longer pointing towards true north. We're pointing to maybe almost north or maybe magnetic north or maybe just a little bit northeast or something like that. And before we know it, we get off track. The continual disobedience of the unsaved man defiles his conscience. So again, I know what God says. I just don't want to do it, and I want to do my own thing. That's the story of the second half of Romans chapter 1. I know what God said. I don't want to do it. I just want to do my own thing. And the Bible says that a man corrupts his conscience. Now again, this isn't something that takes place overnight, but it's something that is more of a slow, continual drift. That I don't begin to see things the way that I used to. Maybe it's more life experience or things like that. And now I have a different viewpoint. Or maybe I'm older now and I see things from a different perspective. And now my, my compass is no longer pointing towards true north. My conscience has become defiled through continual disobedience. We can know that our conscience has been defiled when we can sin against God and not feel badly about it. When we make excuses for our sin, for example, and I've heard Christians do this as well, hey, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but it's not like I'm murdering someone. Okay, now we're making excuses for things that should cause us to feel sorrow for sinning against God. I should feel guilt over poor decisions or sin in my life, but I begin to make excuses for it. Well, of course I'm not perfect, but, you know, at least I'm trying. And again, these are all statements that we make when we've defiled our conscience. Because if we're truly in tune with the Holy Spirit, we'll take a look at the Holy Spirit's role in just a little bit, and our conscience is, is sensitive. When, I'm done, when I've done wrong, I say, wow, I've messed up. I want to make that right. I'm sorry that I've offended you. Can, would you please forgive me? I want to make a change in my life. That's what happens when we're in tune with our conscience and in tune with the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 1, verse number 15 uh, and 16 says, Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So, so hang on for just a second and see that he's talking about non-Christians here in this case, those that are defiled and they're unbelieving. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They don't believe uh, that in Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior. These are unbelieving people who everything that they do is corrupt for a corrupt purpose. Now, you might think, go like, wow, that sounds really bad. I don't know anybody like that. Actually, you do. These are the types of people who only want to serve themselves, I don't think about the effect on anybody else. I don't think about the effect on my wife, on my children, on my neighbors, on my coworkers. I just want to do what's right for me. This is those people who have a defiled conscience. Uh, they continue to sin against God again and again. But, but it's not done. Verse number 16 here says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. These are the people that sin against God again and again and again, but they say they know God. Interesting thing to note here, this isn't in your notes, but it's really helpful that you should probably jot this down. 
when someone claims to be a Christian but lives a lifestyle in opposition to the Bible, there's three basic options to explain that, okay? They claim to be a Christian, but they're living in opposition to Scripture. First of all, they are a rebellious Christian. I know what God's Word says. I will shake my fist in the face of God. I will just do what I want to do. And if you're taking notes, right out beside of that, Hebrews chapter 12. It talks about chastisement. If you're a child of God and you disobey, you will be disciplined, you will be spanked. Any parent worth their salt when their child disobeys them and shakes a fist in their face will lovingly correct them, not out of anger or a desire to hurt them, but out of a desire to love them and help them to be a productive member of society one day. God is the same way, and in fact, if he has a child who shakes his fist in the face of God, God says, okay, I'm not taking that. I'm going to get your attention, and God makes your life increasingly more difficult to drive you back to repentance. So you have a Christian who's living in rebellion. This is someone who has chosen to rebel against God. Second option, again, these are high-level categories. There's probably more, but these are ones that are off the top of my head. Second category, you have a Christian who is saved but has not yet been discipled and they don't know that they're living in sin. This is more common than you would think. Someone hears a message, puts their faith in Christ, truly trusts in Jesus to save them from their sin, and then they go to a lifestyle of sin because they didn't know any better. Angela and I, when we got married, she got saved at a Baptist revival when she was 13 and knew literally almost nothing about the Bible. I grew up in church my whole life. I was saved when I was nine years old. I knew a lot of Bible stories, but I literally knew nothing about living the Bible on a day-to-day basis. Just didn't know. And we were baby Christians. We were saved for sure, no doubt about it. We put our faith and trust in Christ and repented of our sin. We were Christians, but there was sin in our life that we didn't even know was there. I'm thankful for a Bible preaching church that helped us to see the error of our ways. And Pat and Jane Smith uh, spent a lot of time, what we would later understand was the process of discipleship, teaching Angela and I how to walk with Jesus and how to know Jesus. And I'm hearing preaching and I'm hearing uh, Bible truths from, from Pat and Jane in my life. And I realize the music that I'm listening to is a sin. I didn't know that. I'm listening to music that all the other Christian friends that I grew up with listen to too, but it's a sin. The movies that I'm watching, they're a sin. The entertainment and television shows that I'm watching, these are a sin. The way that I handle my finances are a sin. The way that I use foul language is a sin. Laughing at crude jokes that I didn't even tell is a sin. And I realized, oh my soul, My life is a wreck. And I recognized nobody ever taught me. I didn't know. And so, so many times we want to jump to the conclusion that this person's a wicked, rebellious, awful, pathetic sinner that, you know, shaking their face, their fist in the face of God. That's sometimes just not the case. People just don't know better because they've never been discipled. They don't know what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus. The third category of those who claim to be Christians but are not truly living as Christians is very, very simple. They are not Christians. Simple as that. That's what this verse here says. Hey, they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They don't know God at all. 
And you say, wait, there's people who would self-identify as Christians that aren't really Christians? Absolutely. Jesus says this, in that day, the day of judgment, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did good works in your name. And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You're not a follower of mine. I have no idea who you are. And the Bible says that they'll be cast into hell. And so in this case here, it says that these people that have continually sinned against God have defiled their own conscience. They don't know which end is up. They don't have any way to orient themselves back to the right path because they've damaged their conscience. The continual disobedience of the unsaved man makes his conscience numb. Again, as we continue to disobey God again and again and again and again, there comes a point where we don't feel badly about it. Maybe I felt bad the first time I did it, but the 86th time I did it, I didn't feel bad at all. This is how people can, can perpetrate heinous acts and feel little to no remorse as a result of it because their conscience has been seared. It's been permanently damaged. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Again, there comes a point where this scar tissue builds up to the fact that there's no nerve endings left in your conscience and you don't even feel badly about it. You can sin against God, but you don't care. This is a dangerous place to be. I've had to sit with couples before in marriage counseling where the wife is just beside herself, boo-hoo bawling, and the husband's got his arms crossed just like this, like, would you stop crying for heaven's sakes? And like, for me, it hurts to watch that. Like, hey, who's right, who's wrong, doesn't matter. Someone is in deep pain here, and you have no feeling towards them whatsoever. Like, I'm the type of person that, I mean, like, if some kid that I don't know skins his knee, I want to pick him up and make sure he's okay and give him a hug, you know, clean his, clean his knee up and dust him off and, because I want to have compassion. But when we have a seared conscience, we no longer feel those things. We no longer feel the tug towards righteousness versus evil. It's just whatever suits me on a particularly given day. Now, this is a dangerous place to be, and people might say, well, hey, is there any way that you can reverse this process? If I find myself with a seared conscience, if I've damaged my true north calibration, can this be fixed? And the answer is absolutely yes, but you can't do it yourself. You see, you've sinned for so long that you've ruined your own life. Sin promises all these benefits on the surface, but when you actually get what you want, you realize there's nothing there worth having. You've tried to live a life apart from Jesus, but you realize that it's come up empty every single time, and you're still missing something. That's showing that your conscience is still alive a little bit. Many times people come to Huikala because they're trying to find help in a devastating situation. Loss of a loved one, marriage falling apart, children have, have rebelled uh, and gotten into sin and things like that, and people have gotten a uh, terrible health diagnosis, and they, so they come thinking like, hey, is there hope for me here? And there's always hope for you at the cross of Jesus Christ, always. But here's the facts. You've sinned against God, I've sinned against God, not once or twice, but to the point where Romans chapter 5 calls us the enemies of God. 
You and I have broken God's law. When you break the law, you have to pay the consequences 100% of the time. Uh, if you get a speeding ticket, you're going to have to pay it. Uh, my wife got a parking ticket the other day, and we have to pay it. I just had to throw that out there for her. Because um, it wasn't like there wasn't plenty of other parking spots available. She had a parking one that specifically said no parking, and then she got a ticket for it. Um, and so she's going to have to pay that, right? Uh, that's what the law says. By the same token... Your sin has a price that must be paid, and the consequences of your sin is death and then God's judgment in hell. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. So you're telling me that, that if we die, we're going to go to hell because we've broken God's law? Absolutely, unless you have a better plan. And your better plan cannot include anything that you can do. Like, well, I'm going to try hard. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do all this good stuff to make up for all the bad stuff that I've done. No, no, no. The only better plan that there is is someone else must pay for you. And his name is Jesus. You see, God doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want to punish you for your sin. That's why he sent his son Jesus and punished Jesus in our place. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to be punished. God doesn't want you to endure the consequences of your sin because Jesus already did. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus was punished on all of our behalves. Jesus paid the price for our sin already in advance. There's just one catch and one catch only. You have to believe it with every fiber of your being and you have to receive it. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The word born again means to be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you can be saved. And being saved is not a matter of joining our church or becoming a Baptist or, you know, taking a class or getting baptized or anything like that. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. It's a one-time deal where you confess your sin before God and you receive Jesus as your Savior. It's really simple. It's a prayer that goes something like this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. That's faith. And I'm asking you today to save me and forgive me of my sins. That's repentance. And if you would pray a simple prayer like that and really mean it, you could be saved in a split second. You don't have to come talk to a pastor or walk an aisle or do any religious stuff. It's about faith and repentance, and you have to do that to be saved. And friend, when you do that, here's the beautiful thing that happens. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. One of those things that becomes new, your conscience, your mind, your heart. God doesn't just take the mess that you've made of your life and go, let me try to clean this up the best that I can. No, no, no. He throws it all away and he starts fresh. That's what it means. If you man being Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, literally become dead. The old man is dead. The new man is alive in Christ. So God doesn't just try to take the the mess that you made and put some duct tape on it and hope that it sticks. No, no, no. He clears everything out and he starts over from scratch, building you into be the man or woman that he created you to be. And that's the only way you can fix what's broken in your life. 
Again, you can try to read self-help books. You can perform self-help mantras. You can stand in front of the mirror and, and quote positive affirmations. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. If that's what you want to do, that doesn't work. You need something bigger than that, and his name is Jesus. That begins the healing process. Now, the moment that you're saved, the Bible says inside of you, you get the Holy Spirit of God. God exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside every single person the moment that they become a Christian. The moment that you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit inside of you. But you can also sin against the Holy Spirit as well. You see, the continual disobedience of the saved man is a result of the quenching of the Spirit. Paul, as he closes out his letter to the church at Thessalonica, gives just one really quick phrase and amongst a bunch of other kind of uh, end of letter encouragements. One of the things he says is quench not the spirit. The word quench means to put out. If Gatorade is the thirst quencher, it puts out your thirst. If we quench the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a roaring fire, we put out the fire. And what happens here is the same thing that happens for the unsaved man when he sears his conscience. You and I no longer hear the Holy Spirit speak any longer. If the Holy Spirit is a hearing aid in your ear telling you, don't do that, don't do that, you should do this instead, remember what Jesus said. Hey, what about this Bible verse? Hey, pastor just talked about that two weeks ago. Hey, pastor said if you ever need help, you can always ask. Remember those things? It's like reaching up and turning that hearing aid down to zero and then continuing on to do whatever you want to do. That's what it means to quench the spirit. And let me just tell you, for the unsaved man, having a seared conscience is a dangerous place to be. For the Christian, having a quenched spirit is an incredibly dangerous place to be because no one's telling you to stop. I had a friend several years ago when we lived in California that his car had the loudest seatbelt dinger thing, reminder that you've ever heard in your life. And you know, one of my cars is like, you let it go for like 20 seconds and it stops and it comes back on like once a minute and reminds you and stuff like that. This one never stopped. You get in, it's like, bing, 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 bing. And you couldn't talk over it. It was so loud. And I was just like, dude, put your seatbelt on. And you're just like, I'm fine without it. No, I can't stand the constant noise. Just put it on. All right, fine. And so then a couple weeks later, he says, hey, I figured out how to get my seatbelt notification to go off. And so, like, I don't know if you, like, got under the dash and got some, like, spray foam insulation and put it in there, you know, to, like, make it not as loud, you know, or if he found a, a fuse that he could pull to make sure that it didn't go off. He's like, you got to check this out. He takes me out to his car, and he opens the door, and across an empty seat, he has his seatbelt plugged in to the, the connection point. And he goes, see, watch this. He turns his car on, and he steps back. Dingin's gone, man. Check that out. And I was like, well, yeah, but you have to put your seatbelt on when you get in. He's like, oh, no, 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 just leave the seatbelt there. And you sit on top of it. I was like, what? Yeah, you sit on top of it, and, like, it never goes off ever. And I was like, you, you can't do that. That's meant to save your life. He's like, no, 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 no. Man, I've been driving for 20-something years. I've never had an accident in my life. I don't need a seatbelt. And I was sitting there like, are you, is this a, like, are you playing a joke on me or something? Like, you don't need a seatbelt. Are you? Are you serious? And he's just like, 
Dude, I'm totally serious. I was like, dude, when you hit something, you will fly through the windshield and your neck will connect with whatever it finds to hit and you're dead. Bah, it's never happened before. Yet, like, dude, you cannot, this is just a bad idea all the way around. And I was like, dude, this is meant to save your life. Hey, look, we look at that guy and go, can anybody really be that stupid, right? Can anybody really be so, I'll use a good Bible word for you, foolish to quench the spirit when it's just trying to save your life? Hey, don't go there. Hey, don't do that. Hey, don't say that. Hey, once you say that, you can't take those words back. Be really, really careful with what you say, and we turn it off and just say it anyways. Hey, don't do that. What you're getting ready to do is going to have lasting ramifications. This could destroy the rest of your life. And we reach up and we turn it off and we plow ahead anyways. That is the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to be because you can sin against God and sin against others and you don't even feel badly about it. The Holy Spirit and your conscience are a gift to show you where you've been wrong to keep you on track. Now, the conscience itself is only an early warning system. It's not the arbiter of truth. Your conscience doesn't get to decide what's right and wrong. It's just meant to kind of throw off some alarm bells before you make a really poor decision. That's the idea behind the conscience. When we moved back to Honolulu back in 2013, uh, it was the beginning of the month, and I'd forgotten the first Monday of every month they put off the, the tsunami sirens at uh, 11.45. I'd forgotten. I was just like, ah, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. And of course, what do you do in a major crisis like this? You get on Google, right? And it was like, why is the siren going off? I was like, is it the first Monday of the month? Is it 11.45? The answer is yes. It's a, oh, okay, I forgot about this. And so then, you know, you forget, and then the next month it goes off again. You look at your watch, you go, well, 11.45, they're just testing the sirens. But then one time, it went off on like a Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You're just like, I, I don't think it's supposed to be going off right now. But here's the thing. They don't tell you what to do next after that, do they? You're just like, oh, no, something's not right somewhere. I'm not sure what it is, but something's not right. And there's no website to go to to find out if, if there's really a threat or not. So you just kind of wait uh, to see what happens. Well, I guess everything's okay. So uh, we go on with life. If you were here for our, the exciting uh, false alarm missile alert, that was a lot of fun, you know. You find out like two hours later after you're huddled in the bathroom praying and thanking Jesus for being good to your life uh, and thinking that you're going to die, you find out later, oh, yeah, false alarm. Sorry about that. Our governor couldn't find his Twitter password to let everybody know. That instills a lot of confidence in, in me. A lot of fun. Hey, again, warning system. Doesn't actually tell you what to do, where to go, or anything like that. It just tells you something's not right somewhere. So we have to go one step deeper to find out where do we find the truth. You see, the conscience is rooted in the law of God, which we saw in, in verse number 15. But it's also subject to cultural norms and societal influence. Therefore, the conscience cannot be an objective source of truth. <coughs> Well, I don't feel bad about doing it, so it must not be wrong. No, 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 no. Your conscience doesn't get to determine right from wrong. It just should be an alarm bell when you get off track. Well, I didn't get any alarm bell, so I must be on track. No, 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 no. That's not the case. Your conscience doesn't determine right from wrong. It's only meant to help guide you back to God's truth. Again, I've known people who have done heinous things and felt no remorse for it whatsoever. That doesn't make it right. 
we were, several years ago, we were on a, a missions trip in uh, Central America, and there's the, this, the village that we were in, where multiple, uh, were the men there in the village that were married and had children, it was culturally acceptable for them to have multiple girlfriends in the village that everybody knew about. It wasn't a secret, everybody kind of knew, uh, just kind of the way their culture was. And the, the pastor in that city had to go, guys, you can't do this. They're like, bah, what's the big deal? Everybody does this. And so many times our conscience can be shaped by cultural norms that are still in violation to the word of God. Uh, again, depending on where you grew up, uh, you know, certain things are right and wrong. You know, some, some places where I grew up, you know, it's, it's almost against the law to pray with a hat on. And so you always take your hat off. You don't. You're disrespectful. You hate God. You have no reverence. And you're a sacrilege blasphemer if you don't take off your hat when you pray. For other people, they're just like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. That's totally a thing, you know? D- depending on where you grew up, you know, uh, there might be other rules and guidelines that were set up that causes your conscience to be uh, heightened in certain situations. So again, that doesn't determine what's right and wrong. We always have to go back to the Bible. The Bible is the objective source of truth. You see, we find ourselves today in a culture of subjective truth. Well, that's true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. And so you've got your truth, I've got my truth, and we'll just live our own truths. And again, we say foolish things like, he just needs the opportunity to be able to speak his truth. No, no, no. Truth doesn't belong to anyone. Facts are facts. You can't change that. It's not my truth versus your truth. There's always the truth. But for there to be an objective truth, we have to have a source for that objective truth. And we find that in God's Word. Again, God's Word says what it says. If you don't like it, too bad. There's parts of the Bible that I don't like it, but they're true nonetheless. And so we have to have a central source of truth. It's always the same for every person. The other thing about our conscience as well is we can't judge another person based upon our own conscience as conscience is subjective. Let me illustrate that for you for just a second. I know people who refuse to go to any restaurant that serves alcohol based on a matter of conscience. And so if it were, you know, uh, a Burger King that had happened to sell beer, they wouldn't go there because a matter of conscience, they wouldn't go to a restaurant that serves alcohol. Other people wouldn't go to restaurants that have the name bar in their, uh, the name of the restaurant. For example, Chili's Grill and Bar, Bar and Grill, wherever it's, it is. Wouldn't go there because it has the name bar in there. For me, as a matter of conscience, when I go to Chili's, if the restaurant's getting, look, I love some chips and salsa, man, like five bowls full I can eat before the meal everything comes, man. So good. And, and the, the best are the ones that are still kind of wet, and there's like six of them stacked together. They make like one, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And they're just so good, man, I could do all day long. But if I go into Chili's and the, the restaurant's jammed and they say, oh, we have seats at the bar, my conscience won't allow me to sit at the bar and eat my chips and salsa. I just don't feel right about it. Does that make sense? That's a conscience thing. I don't feel right sitting around a place where people primarily drink alcohol for me to have a glass of water or tea and eat my chips and salsa. I don't feel good about that. So for a matter of conscience, I don't. Here's the problem. Sometimes people try to judge other people based on their own conscience. And that's what Paul's saying uh, to the church at Corinth here. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 29, conscience, I say, not your own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Why are you 
trying to hold me responsible for things that are on your conscience. That's not how this works. Now, I want to explain a couple of things. First of all, when it comes to Scripture, that's not a matter of, of conscience. That's a matter of obedience. For example, uh, you want to have your neighbors over and grill and, and, and provide alcohol for everybody. The Bible says, woe unto the man that giveth his neighbor drink. The Bible forbids you to give alcohol to another person. Forbids. And again, you want to talk about what the Bible has to say about alcohol. It says tons. And most people just know that Jesus turned water into wine, which isn't really, Jesus wasn't a bartender for a wedding. There's a whole different story along with that, okay? Please understand. But again, when you have a scriptural prohibition, woe unto the man that giveth his neighbor drink, and you violate that, that's not a matter of conscience, that's a matter of obedience or disobedience. It's black and white. You either follow the rule or you don't. Conscience is things like, uh, for example, I have very good friends who say, we will, won't own a TV because TVs are full of filth and garbage and awfulness, and it's a waste of time, and it's a waste of money and waste of resources. We won't own a TV. And to that I say, God bless you, I'm for you, I support you 100%. If that's the choice that you make and that's the way you wanna keep your home holy, I support you. But there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not have a TV, so it's now it becomes a matter of conscience. And if you choose to do that to obey your conscience, I support you. The problem comes when you try to put on me or other Christians, any Christian who owns a television is worldly and ungodly. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're judging me now based on your conscience. I don't share the same conscience. I don't share the same conviction that you do. Therefore, you can't put that on me. Does that make sense? And so again, if you, if you don't go to, to Chili's because they have a bar there, I support you 100%. But don't try to mess with my chips and salsa, right? <laughs> That's for you. Don't mess with mine. That's what Paul's saying when saying like, hey, if it's a matter of liberty where Christians can kind of make their own decisions about this, then, then in cases like that, don't put your conscience on me. Live out your own conscience. And, and again, we support that. For the unsaved man, the conscience already de declares him guilty. And the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. So here we see whenever we sin, God deals with the saved man and the unsaved man differently when it deals with the conscience and the Holy Spirit. The unsaved man has sinned. He's broken God's law. He knows what he's done is wrong, whether or not he knows the chapter and verse to find it in the Bible. He knows that he's been wrong because his conscience has told him that he's wrong. But then the Holy Spirit, as an external force, because, again, understand this, if you're saved, if you've been born again, inside of you, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're not saved and you've never been born again, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You have your conscience, and then the Holy Spirit as an external force on you shows you where you are wrong and what God expects of you. So it's kind of like a one-two punch. You've defi defied your conscience and you've sinned, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit externally is pointing out areas of your life where you are wrong. And please understand, that's actually a really good thing. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse number seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient. It's good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I'll send him unto you. And when he's come, he'll reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to show you where you've been wrong. This is a gift. Because otherwise, we're just cruising through life thinking that we're doing good. We're cruising through life thinking all these terrible decisions we're making are okay. But God has given us an early warning system, our conscience, and he's using the Holy Spirit to say, hey, bro, you're not okay. Every wrong thing you've done is wrong as wrong can be, 
and there's consequences for your actions when you rebel against me. That's what the job of the Holy Spirit and the conscience in the unsaved man. For the, the saved man, for the Christian, it's a little bit different because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. For the saved, the conscience works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to guide us into truth. So here's how the conscience works together with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important we understand John chapter 16, what Jesus says in verse number 13 first. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit has come, he'll guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So the job of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into truth and to tell you what Jesus has already said. So when the saved man sins against God, the conscience says, whoa, 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 this is not good. The Holy Spirit reminds us, hey, you remember that verse in the Bible that says flee youthful lust? Yeah, we shouldn't be doing this right now. That's how your conscience and the Holy Spirit work together to guide you away from sin. Now again, you're free to reach up and turn off the Holy Spirit and continue to plow forward into sin, but God has given you these two gifts, the conscience and the Holy Spirit, to guide you away from sin and guide you into truth. I, I hope and I pray that every person that calls themselves a Christian that looks at pornography, that the Holy Spirit would convict you when you open up that web browser. Hey, we shouldn't be doing this. Hey, you remember how pastor says this destroys your life. Hey, remember how pastor said you can always come to him and ask for help and he'll never judge you. Hey, you really need help with this. You can't continue to live this life. It's only a matter of time before you get found out. The Bible says be sure your sin will find you out. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And I pray that it does that for you because this is to your benefit. But so many times we're just like, I just want what I want. I don't want to be guilt-tripped into doing the right thing. And man, I just don't even want to hear this. And you quench the spirit, you disobey your conscience, and you plow ahead. And it's only a matter of time before you get what's coming to you. And God's like, it doesn't have to be this way. And so... Again, if you're here today and, and you've seared your conscience, you've quenched the spirit, make it right with God today. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just repent of your sin, lay it down, never pick it up again. So the Jews had the law, they disobeyed the law, and they're going to be judged by it. And, and at the end of verse number 15, it tells us here that the Gentiles who don't have the law they failed to obey even their own conscience. So their conscience has declared them guilty. Okay, I didn't know the, the, the Bible said that I'm not supposed to lie. But your conscience told you you shouldn't tell a lie. Well, I know I shouldn't have stolen that, but I didn't know the Ten Commandments said thou shalt not steal. No, but you didn't, but your conscience has already declared you guilty. So get this. The Jew who had the law is guilty because they had the law and they broke it. The Gentile who did not have the law had their own conscience and they couldn't even obey their own conscience. They broke the law that God had written on their heart, which was their conscience, and now they're guilty before God. So we're all in the same boat together. We're just a bunch of sinners who've broken God's law. Jew, Gentile, law, no law, 
conscience, Holy Spirit, we're all in the same mess. And there's only one person, one person in the world that can save us from this mess. And his name is Jesus. That's why we call him Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, friend, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you need to be saved today. Christian, if you're here today and you're saved, but you've been rebelling against God and you've quenched the Spirit, make it right with God. You want to fix the quenching of the Spirit, repent of your sin, and come back to the Word of God because the Holy Spirit always drives you back to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't guide you with some burning in your chest. The Holy Spirit doesn't guide you through dreams and visions. Oh, I closed my eyes and I saw this white horse running and jumping over a fence. What does that mean? That means nothing. That's not from the Holy Spirit. We just saw John 16. The Holy Spirit guides you back to truth that's found in God's word and reminds you of what Jesus has already said. So you want to fix the quenching of the Spirit? Mega dose on the word of God. Angela and I this past week spent some time in San Diego with the Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. They're celebrating their 20-year anniversary today as a church, and we had the opportunity to celebrate with them this past week. And I spent some time with my friend Chris Chadwick, and I was deeply convicted because as we're talking about life and situation and parenting and pastoring and things like that, we talk about difficult situations sometimes that we face, and every single time we did, he would quote something from the book of Proverbs. I mean, just like clockwork. And I thought to myself, wow. But then I thought, like, he's not saying these things because he's so wise. He's saying these things because God's word is so wise. But he's been wise enough to submit himself to the word of God and to commit these things to memory. And man, I was convicted, like, I got to start memorizing the book of Proverbs. Like, what part of it? There's 31 chapters. I got a lot of work to do. But if I want to be wise, I need to submit myself to wisdom. And so, Christian, maybe you need to submit yourself back to the Bible and just obey God's word. If you're here today and you're not saved, be saved today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.